Hi, and welcome to Just a GP. Today you're here with myself, Dr. Rebecca Hoffman, and our usual host, Charlotte Hespi, who today is sitting in the interviewee chair and we'll be interviewing her. But special thanks to our special co-host for today, Dr. Jess Titterman, who is stepping in to the co-hosting role with me. So welcome, Jess, and hello, Charlotte. Hi. Hello. Thanks, Beck. And so to start, as per always, we're going to start with our highlight of the week. Charlotte, do you want to take us away with your highlight of the week? Yeah, sure. Easy today for me too because yesterday was a slightly strange wedding anniversary in that it was 37 and a half years. Now, what's 37 and a half years? It's the halfway mark between silver and gold. And so I wanted to surprise my halfway silver gold man. So he had no idea, but I organised some surprise treats for us yesterday and that included a night out in a gorgeous boutique hotel in Piemont and tickets to Hamilton. He got told he had to leave work early and have a bit of a late start this morning and so we just had this lovely surprise. He had no idea night out and Hamilton was as fabulous as expected. We'd seen it already in Chicago so actually it was I'd say sort of 200 times better seeing it both at home, but also with a wonderful Australian cast who just, it was, yeah, great night out. It sounds amazing. And congratulations. Yeah, that's big. I know. It sounds a bit bit long and old, doesn't it? I sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of like, do I really want to share that, that long? But yes, I'm proud yeah. of the fact that I've been married 37 and a half years to one man and I still love him to bits. Well, and as my brother said the other day, it's a choice. So I think it is something to be proud of. It doesn't happen by accident. And you, Jess, what is your highlight of the week? Well, I feel like I can't top Charlotte's. I also I saw <laughs> Hamilton earlier this year and it is fantastic. My highlight this week was getting out in the snow at work with my colleagues on Wednesday afternoon. This is at my TGA work and I was in a meeting with my manager and my sort of co-team leader and we thought let's go outside and actually you know check out the snow so we had a so you had a play in the snow we did it had actually sort of turned into sort of sleet and rain so we took our umbrellas and not everyone was wearing the best footwear but we threw caution to the wind so to speak and got out in the snow we drew the line at snow angels because it was pretty wet that we had a little mini photo shoot and it was pretty cool I haven't seen that much snow in Canberra for a long time Really exciting. My highlight of the week is actually I've taken some time to go back and listen to audiobooks again. It's been a little while since I have because I'm no longer doing a big drive every day to work, but I've really enjoyed going back and starting a new one. And the one I'm reading is called Phosphorescence, which is a discussion about things that are lit and the awe that different lights give you in the environment. And it's a really interesting book because each chapter looks at different things in the environment that are lit in different ways and how they make you feel. And it's made me actually just look at things a little bit differently and reminded me why I like listening to audiobooks because they let you escape from everything else that's going on and it's been a really nice something else to do. 
It's a good change of focus, that book. I got My mum gave it to me for Christmas after an obviously tough year for everybody and it's definitely good to remind you to be present. Yeah. But well, we've asked Charlotte to come in because Charlotte, as one of her many things that she's doing, is doing a PhD, which is really exciting and something in an area that she's really passionate about. So we were hoping to bring her on to discuss where she's up to in the process, what she's researching and how she's finding the process. So Charlotte, for people who don't already know, would you be able to start from the beginning and talk us through what your research interest is and where you're up to in the process? Thanks, Beck, and thanks for the opportunity to sort of have a little bit of a rave about this sort of side of my life. So taking it from the beginning. So I actually got involved in quality improvement work back in around about 2008 when our practice was involved with the Australian Primary Care Collaboratives and Improvement Foundation. And I know I probably am a bit slow because I'd been a GP at that time for about eight or nine, ten years, but I hadn't gotten the relationship between measuring what you do aligning it with what it was that you thought you wanted to achieve and then looking at the ways that you could actually do better. So it sort of was like one of those aha moments with, oh gosh, you know, like I'd sort of done it but without ever measuring it. So like I was always striving to do what I did better but didn't actually have any of the tools and made me realise that certainly as a GP, I'd never been taught about systems thinking. So about actually having, you know, a really organised way of, of looking at what we were doing. So I just started to have this amazing relationship with data because I just really started to get excited about looking at what our practice was doing and figuring out where we didn't do as well. And more to the point started, all these questions came in my head about, well, why weren't we doing as well as we thought we were in a whole lot of things? And for instance, blood pressure measurements. So I was sort of really fascinated by how we set this ridiculously rigid number for blood pressure measurement. You know, there's an above and a below, yet as a GP, we're all totally aware that that number is a really rubbery number for a patient. I mean, I will measure it, say, four times for a patient often when they're in my rooms. And, you know, for some of them, they start off really high. And then by the end of the consult, they've come down to a reasonable level at which then it might be repeatable, but it's still never exactly the same. It's just this sort of, you know, bouncing around a little bit. Yet we have this very rigid line. And so when you do some of this quality improvement work, you get set this you know, your patients must have a blood pressure less than 140 on 80, for instance. So what happens when they're 141 on 81? They're put in the red line zone, yet you and I as GPs go, well, actually, are they a red line? And at what point does it become the red line? So when do we start changing our management protocols? Like, do I up the medicine when it's 141 on 81 or when it's 142 or 43, 44, 45? Is it 150? This this sort of grey zone. Then there's also that whole thing about the gold standard about how you actually measure it. You know, what machine do I use? 
Do I do it first thing in the morning? Do I do it in the evening? Do I do it with their feet flat on the floor? Do I have the sleeve rolled up or their sleeve down? Are they supposed to have had coffee beforehand? There's so many variables about it. There was just that question, but it brought up all this stuff about how do we do the best by our patients and where does that patient-centred control come in in terms of preventive healthcare, et cetera. So I'm sort of becoming a bit ravey, but that's sort of where I had this sort of a bit of a, an opening of lots of questions, which had probably been brewing below the surface, but I finally had a mechanism by which I started to voice them because we were looking not just at one patient's data, but at everybody's. And once you start pooling everybody's, it actually looks very different from the individual patient in front of you. And then on top of that, can I say, I was inspired. I'd been a bit blue about general practice in terms of, you know, that there was a negativity about what we as generalists do and, you know, some of that whole thing about how we're seen in the hierarchical status of doctors, which is a complete nonsense because, you know, we know, us generalists know that we're the cleverest doctors of all because we have to manage everything. I saw this beautiful post on Just a GP, I think it was Just a GP anyway, this week, where a woman said her four-year-old had told somebody that her daddy was an eye doctor, but her mummy was a doctor of everything. And I just love that because that really does, I think, encompass what we are. But I needed a bit of encouragement. And the whole APCC program and the Improvement Foundation was this fantastic sort of shot of adrenaline, encouragement, enthusiasm. I just met the most wonderful, wonderful people all around Australia who were doing fantastic work with their communities. And it was so inspiring. And so I just went away really proud of what we have an opportunity to be and do. And we don't often get that chance really because a lot of the time we are feeling a bit down the dumps about some of the challenges that we have. And you read articles that say, oh, I wish the GPs were doing this better or the GPs were doing that better. And it's just like, oh, for goodness sake, give us a break. We're doing everything. And, you know, if you actually bothered funding us and recognising what we do better, then maybe we would be able to set up better systems to actually capture more of that that stuff. But while we're still these, it's a very miserly funded but incredibly huge role that we play in our healthcare system. So that then sort of played into the opportunity I got to win this grant. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it was by chance that I was in the right place at the right time and basically got this grant to fund a quality improvement project just in my own geographical footprint, looking at the role of what they call quality improvement collaboratives, which is sort of the the model that the APCC and Improvement Foundation used to actually inspire GPs to go and do improvements around quality care. And so the PhD question was around how do we implement quality improvement process in the real world of general practice, because I'm interested in that, not in the theoretical or the ideas world. So in the real world of general practice, how does quality improvement get embedded? And we used the model of cardiovascular disease preventive care as the topic because it's an easy topic because there are very well researched evidence-based points, you know, and that line in the sand that says if you do do blood pressure better than this and if you do have lipids lower than this 
and you have exercise and you, you know, do this, then we know that we're going to decrease the rate of cardiovascular disease, poor outcomes in patients who are high risk. So it sort of opened up this huge area of research for me since that time in the whole cardiovascular disease area. So although cardiovascular disease was never actually my particular passion, in fact, you could probably more say that it was diabetes, but diabetes patients do have this sort of high risk cardiovascular disease, obviously. So I've now fallen into a whole lot of work in cardiovascular disease and in preventive care. And so I've been able to do some other research on the side, which I won't bore everybody with, but is very much in that same sort of area about what the role of general practice is in both in screening, finding, case finding for familial hypercholesterolemia and also in atrial fibrillation. But if we go back to my actual PhD project, we did it as a mixed methods project. We wanted to enrol a whole lot of practices in the footprint of that time Medicare Local. And just as we were about to launch, of course, the real world intervened and Medicare Locals became no more and became PHNs. And so in many respects, my, my project fell over because it moved from a, an organisational size that knew our practices quite well, because our Medicare Local had actually been our division of general practice. We just morphed into a Medicare Local. So we had a long-term engagement with the staff and the, the practices, et cetera. And then all of a sudden morphed into a much bigger organisation that actually was three Medicare Locals previously and everybody got subsumed by what that looked like what that change meant all the new staff all the everything so sort of fortunately or unfortunately my project did fall over but that was actually what I was interested in so I suppose I actually have to say failing wasn't a disaster for my PhD a disaster for me because I wanted the project to work but actually a much better learning world around what does it take to assist general practices in doing quality improvement work in the real world, because the real world is always going to change. It's always morphing. And, you know, as we all know, how long is a PHN going to be there? I mean, we only need a government who has a completely different attitude and they're gone. But whereas we as general practitioners will continue on with whatever models we have to work with and support organisations. So you had the big drama about then Medicare locals became PHNs and what do you do when the PHN doesn't know who you are, what you're trying to achieve? Where do you go with that? Yeah, so where do you go with that? We, we basically continued to run it as best we could. We employed a project officer who we moved over from the Medicare local into the PHN. She struggled to survive. We planned to try and get, <laughs> we'd had this goal of 100 practices to be involved in the project and we'd very easily sort of got 30 from the Medicare local. The ability to engage with them sort of fell over. We actually enlisted around about I think 45 or 50 before it became apparent that it just wasn't going to be able to keep going in the way it had been planned because the project officer had no support around her. Everybody was distracted by what they otherwise had to do and the sort of the focus of the PHN wasn't on maintaining that relationship with the general practices and my QIC project had very much 
had underlying it a model that the relationship with the supporting organisation, which had become the PHN, was absolutely key and crucial to the practices being able to do this work because they needed to have a monthly report on what their data was, assistance in doing what we call a plan, do, study, act. Can I say GPs and their staff hate plan, do, study, act, (laughs) but they are actually the foundation for actually being able to do the work. And once you sort of start doing them, you can do them in your head. You don't need to formally write them down. But the nice thing about it's a bit like, you know, when people are anxious, if they write down what they're anxious about and then a plan about how they're going to manage it, it actually puts it in concrete and makes it doable. And that's really like how I put a plan, do, study, act is that you can see what the problem is. You might see a little plan about how you might be able to do it and you might go and do it. But by actually documenting it, It actually pins you down to dates, pins you down to setting real goals, and then makes you actually have to keep accountable to it. That takes a little bit of time and it also takes a bit of teaching because it's not the natural way that people think about things and they don't necessarily want to be sort of pinned down to, you know, a specific task. And the other thing that we as GPs tend to do is we tend to set much too big a goal. So we go, you know, the smoking status in our practice is recorded at say 45%, let's put that. So you'll go, oh, that's terrible. Let's improve it to, you know, I want to have 90% of the patients in my practice recorded. And that's, you know, that's what we're going to go to, but they don't actually then pin it down to, well, how are you going to do that? What's the process? And you need to do little, little steps along the way. So for instance, for a week, let's actually make everybody check the smoking status on every patient and actively ask them. And at the end of the week, let's see what's changed and has that actually worked? And if that did work, is it then something that everybody wants to keep doing? And how long would it take you to do to get to the 90% goal? It might be completely untenable. Or is it better to just give a sheet of paper to all the patients as they come in to say, can you please update your status on your smoking, your alcohol, your family history, you know, do that and then get that entered into the file or Is it better to have everybody go and have a chat with the nurse and at the same time you could measure your waists or something? You know, but sort of actually give something a tangible thing that the practice does, but give it a week, see whether it works, whether it's too onerous, too much work, nobody likes doing it, or it really doesn't make a difference anyway. So that's where the the Plan Do Study Act often you need to have that sort of assistance. And we just didn't have that with this project at all. We also unfortunately had problems with our data extraction tool. So we, it was a linked project with the George Institute, which is a fabulous research institute with some really good data governance and management stuff. So that was really fantastic that we were able to send our data to them and they were actually able to pull out more data than the PenCAT tool can do. And as part of this project, every GP practice that got enrolled got given access to the pen set of tools because at that time it wasn't sort of an automatic thing so they all got pen they got access to top bar which is this sort of a tool that and again wasn't part of the normal package of pen at that time but also as part of the top bar they got a special tool called health tracker that actually gave them all the data of cardiovascular disease risk and some really good visual aids to be able to play around with the patients to show them the difference that a better blood pressure, stopping smoking, better lipids, exercise, you know, those sorts of things might actually do to their cardiovascular risk so that you could engage the patient better with why they might want to do something. 
rather than not do something, also to help the GP, and also had a data extraction tool that was specifically around the outcome measures that we were interested, which was specifically around the prescribing of statins, the prescribing of blood pressure lowering medication. Very difficult for us to pull out anything about exercise because that just isn't in our um, EMRs. So we were very confined to that very medicalisation of it, but seeing the prescription of medicines as being key to that. And unfortunately, there were some data extraction issues, which again, because we were short of staff and all of the issues around that meant that half of the practices that ended up doing the practice didn't actually have all of the prescribing data linked. So although we had 34 practices do the project, we actually only had complete data on 15 of those practices, which isn't a bad amount of data, but it was nothing like, you know, and you're setting out with this sort of idealistic goal that we could have 100 practices in the first place. 15 was sort of a very disappointing number. So that was our quant data. We had 28 practices data, though, worth for our pre-intervention. And I was also able to make use of four other projects that I was involved with with the George Institute at the time around cardiovascular disease, which meant that for our pre-implementation sort of database, we actually had 99 practices to be able to actually look at what baseline data is at this point in time for general practice from an EMR knowing that all the limitations around that because you don't capture everything. So we got 15 for the post-intervention and then we also did a number of interviews with all the participants, both from the PHN and from the practices to try and understand, you know, what are the barriers and the enablers for quality improvement work. And, and really, as Beck, you might relate to, qualitative data is very rich and it's, it's much better at helping us explain and understand what's going on in general practice than an EMR data, which which is really good for us to be able to say, how do I improve? But it doesn't explain what's going on. And so the qualitative interviews have been the richest source of that, which is why I say, although it was a failure, really when things go wrong is when you find out a bit more about what is needed to be there in place for it to actually start happening. I absolutely agree. I actually really love doing qualitative data with GPs. I find it's something that the GPs themselves prefer to do than look at data and also that they prefer to read. So I find that explaining that to my staff and the other GPs that I work with using qualitative, this is the outcomes that were seen and these are the words that they said, are much easier than saying the statistical outcome showed these numbers and perhaps it's because I don't love the statistical side myself either and I'm not particularly wonderful at explaining that but my preference is definitely to talk to people rather than to look at the numbers. Yeah I mean and I think my my natural intuitive self is around the qualitative as well but I certainly I like the fact that I've got the quantitative data to base that on and that's been a really nice part of this project that I've got the both. And, you know, like I think all the learning lessons from where data goes wrong and the limitations of how you work in this sort of very, I think, difficult setting of general practice in terms of trying to understand what we all do. And part of one of the findings is, you know, that the practices are so different. Like there's nothing nothing the same about any of the practices that we're involved with. So again, you know, one size does not fit 
all and you have all of the nuances about you know who is the leader in a practice if it's a corporate who takes responsibility for what the GPs do or don't do how do you even in any way seed or nurture and flourish the desire for people to deliver quality care versus just doing the day-to-day coalface of seeing the patient in front of you which is very exhausting and you know it's a wonderful thing to do but sometimes you do lose track of of the bigger picture when you're just seeing patient after patient and what does that look like and what are you actually doing and the time out to actually look at your data and understand whether you're doing as good a job as you think you are as I always say to my medical students that I've always been struck by I, I always used to think I was better than I am and that I can always do better and you know, that's, I'm sure I'm not alone. And I, you know, I look forward to the day when I meet someone who does 100% of everything all the time, because I don't think that's possible personally, but that's okay. (laughs) I think what you were saying, Charlotte, about the practices being different is also as much because the patients are different. So what you were saying before about blood pressure measurements being rubbery, and we set these sort of arbitrary lines, it is similar when we're trying to measure things. There's so many variables at every level in general practice with the, the demographic, the patients of that particular practice, which is a big part of why the practices differ is that they're sort of trying to meet the needs of their population and, as you say, leadership and how that's structured, which I think just speaks to a lot of the challenges about trying to obtain good data in the general practice space. But it's so important. I think that's what's so challenging is because we do so many different things and there isn't a guideline for absolutely everything and it's really important to have that data and that evidence but it is really challenging to obtain. Absolutely and can I say that to me that's one of the biggest sort of findings for me from this is that the quality improvement model that we do is very doctor focused and general practice focused which it's sort of needs to be on that systems level of, you know, you need to have a system that is designed to to be able to know what you're doing in the first place and and set some things. But then you actually need to go, so how does that then accommodate the patient in that? And how do we measure what it is that a patient does or doesn't want? Because you and I both know, you know, it's I can say to 10 different patients exactly the same results and I'll have to have 10 different sort of negotiations about what that means and how they respond to it and what they're willing to do, you know, to some who are begging for a prescription, to others who there is no way in the world that they are ever going to take home a prescription. And quite honestly, they probably aren't going to do much about it anyway. And that's okay as long as we've had those conversations and we understand why, but we can't capture that in our data, in an electronic medical record, all it captures is whether I've actually prescribed for that patient. Yeah, it's all binary. And that's what what you and Beck were saying about the, the real meaning is in the qualitative data because, you know, something might not have been done or might not have happened or the patient might not have followed through, but the, the why is actually what's important. Was it that it wasn't recorded or was it that it didn't happen? And that's, I see that looking at some medicines data from general practice is that we can see what was prescribed, but you're not getting the detail of the consultation about why or whether it was a discussion about how this might work. And I mean, that's that's a lot more time. I guess you would both appreciate having collected this data that the qualitative data 
and it sounds like definitely more meaningful for a lot of people and I think GPs can relate to it a lot more but it's very time consuming to collect and sort through and collate. Yeah well just doing the whole data analysis takes a whole lot more skill really and trying to figure out you know the themes that then string together that then actually give you something that you can say well okay this is where we need to go with it and how do I jump up and down loudly enough I mean for me a very loud message was around incentives you know our current model of care there is no incentive for general practice to do quality improvement work because we are so so funded to the bone that you know everybody is burnt out and all they can do is do what's being asked of them at a very you know when I say at a very basic level I know that there's lots of far more than just a basic level being done like so don't you know I'm not here in any way criticizing what anybody's doing I'm more saying if I'm looking at it from a funding perspective I'm not funding for anything else apart from you know the bare bones stuff to be done when we actually have a huge opportunity. We have this wonderful workforce of very skilled doctors that we're just not utilising and we're not encouraging them, we're not upskilling them and we're not actually letting them work to what, you know, I've talked about this before, but to the top of our scope, you know. So how do I actually make sure that all the skills I have are actually utilised for my practice and I make use of nurses, admin staff, allied health, pharmacists, etc., to do a whole lot of the other tasks that we can see are aligned with improving these things, but I don't actually need to do. So I can then actually really come into play with that sort of more of the conductor high level role. And we can all choose to do how much of it we do or don't want to as well. It's tough because as you say, it's time and money that GPs and general practice doesn't have. Yep which is the challenge, there's there's obviously, you know, a lot more funding for research in other areas of medicine and it can be more straightforward to, to do that research too. But as we know, um, with all things general practice, it affects the bulk of our population, but it's largely overlooked because, as you say, we can always do things better and there'd be improvements for GPs themselves, for patients and the whole population, really. Yeah, but there's also a lot of value placed on the scientific, quantitative, biochemistry sort of approach. And that's why I was sort of emphasising about the real world of general practice, because we get told all of these, you know, guidelines, but the guidelines are, generally speaking, put together by the partialists, the people who are just interested in that bit of the patient. And often the research around it is actually... I mean, I never know how they find these patients who just have that particular condition and nothing else. And it's all based on that. Yet we have to work with a much messier, much more complex environment where we have to sort of try and make sense of a whole lot of these things. And the real world never looks like that sort of science. But that's what gets funded and continues to get funded and gets rewarded. I mean, I still hear some of these very highly regarded medical researchers poo-pooing qualitative research because they they don't understand it. It's too, can I say it's a bit like the whole me me calling specialists partialists, that they don't understand that it is a, a unique skill to be able to do that sort of analysis and make the meaning of the stuff have so much more to go with. Yeah, maybe it's too hard 
and it's not as visible in their areas because, as you say, the, the value of that qualitative data becomes apparent when you're looking after a whole family who maybe each have multiple different conditions or and so the guideline doesn't account for having to counsel and consider for all those variety of factors that you're not looking at one 70 kilo white man who happens to only have hypertension. Absolutely. So if we go back to my PhD, so I'm at the point I have all the data, I am having to write it up and make sense of it. So I've pretty much done that and I'm now in the what I can see is although the end of it is actually the bit that's going to take the most time I'm I'm what I describe as being a constipated writer (laughs) I like talking but I find it really hard when I write to actually say what I want to say in a in a really easily short readable way so it takes a very long time to write what I want to write which is such a pain I'd love to be one of these people that can very quickly write a really easy to read good research article but maybe that will always elude me but that's okay I'll just have to pump out what I have to pump out I don't know anyone who finds that step easy it's always challenging to put all of the things in my head into words that someone else can understand yeah I think that's it isn't it Beck I've spent so much time thinking it through that I don't always realise that when I put it on paper that a whole lot of the behind the scenes stuff doesn't come with it. That's where good editing comes in. Sometimes the key about writing is getting it on the paper and then letting someone else say this bit isn't clear. You can see what's missing because I think a lot of people think of writing as something that you do on your own but I think if, if it's going to be something that, that is read by lots of people, it'll be a collective effort. I, knowing both of you, I'm sure neither of you are not as good at it as you would think you are. Well, one would hope that you do get better as you do it more. <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly came into research sort of later in my sort of career life and I am definitely a clinician at heart, but I've, I'm coming at that sort of more academic approach to how I'm doing it and enjoying that side of it. But I don't want to ever lose the fact that I primarily am a clinician because that gives me a completely different set of eyes to my colleagues who view themselves primarily as an academic. And I think together, when you have the academic eyes next to the clinician eyes, you actually get a much better view and output than you do when you have either by themselves. I agree. Agreed. I think we might take that moment to wrap us up for the podcast for today and finish with our usual segment of pearls or hot tips of the week. Jess, as our co-host extraordinaire, thank you for your time, but can you leave us with your pearl or tip of the week? Yes, thank you for having me. I don't know if it's a pearl, but something that I've been using increasingly in my practice is the ACE score, so Adverse Childhood Experiences. I'm working in a service where most of my patients have a background of trauma, but I think what I'm, and let's be honest, all of us in general practice, um, whether we realise it or not at the time, are in that situation, and realising increasingly that you don't necessarily know that at the beginning and, and how much it can shape a person's life and health experience. 
So I'm trying to incorporate it more as part of my routine practice that we ask people about smoking and we ask people about alcohol and we look at weight and blood pressure. I'm trying to more routinely ask about people's childhood and and, and early life experiences and specifically the, the, as I said, looking at the ACE score. So noting that um, and there's lots of sources if, if people Google adverse childhood experiences, but that, you know, if, if people's parents have separated or a parent is in prison or drug and alcohol problems, mental health, it makes sense that, that that's going to affect their path, that child and person's path in life and can have a huge consequence on their health outcomes. So that's, the, that's a big one for me at the moment. And we might link some really good, YouTube videos that are around on the same thing to this podcast as well. Yes, that would be great. Thanks. I might link mine with some of the sort of what I was talking about that have changed my practice through the quality improvement work. And so I use every day a point of care decision sort of tool on my software that's an add-on. I use Doctor's Control Panel. Um, I've also have used Top Bar, which is the tool that we use with my research. The only reason I, I don't actually use Top Bar as an ongoing tool is because it is actually a little bit more time consuming to go into it and make use of it. I think it's getting better and better. Health Tracker itself, if you do have Top Bar, please keep using it and use Health Tracker because it's a fantastic CBD risk tool. But for me as a day-to-day tool, I use Doctor's Control Panel, which is a free add-on that was designed actually by a GP and he still oversees it who was inspired through the quality improvement APCC program to do this, to try and improve what he was doing. And, you know, like I just all credit to him, it is fantastic, light touch, easy tool, and just gives me so much information about my patients and what's in their record with just a glimpse at it. And so I am actually able to update and improve the data that's in all of my patients' file by by using it. And I don't have to use it if I don't want to because we've got other things happening in the consultation or I can use it to add value, whatever I want to do, which is great. And it runs on a traffic light scheme. So just Google Doctor's Control Panel. You can pay for a subscription, which gives you even more stuff, and it means that Anton, who's developed the tool, gets a little bit of money, and I think that's great. He deserves a lot of money, not just a little bit of money. I've used that too, and it is great. The highlight I've had for the week is I've spent some time with some of my patients in particularly in COVID vaccination clinic, but explaining the MyGov app to them and how to use it, particularly for finding immunisation records. And so many of my patients didn't even know that it existed. And I've actually found it really to be helpful to show them quite a number of things that they can find on the app that they didn't otherwise know. But I really would just encourage people to re-familiarise themselves with the app, but also talk to their patients about it because there's not a lot of media about how great it is. And it is a really good tool that's funded and is free and is there and available and saves me a lot of time having to look up other people's immunisations if they already have it there in front of them. And yeah, it's really great. So in a very, very chilly winter, I'm going to say goodbye and let you all get back to hopefully warm cups of coffee and Ugg boots. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Beck. Thank you, Jess. And thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to have a rant and a rave about my PhD, which has been good and give me a, a shot of adrenaline to 
get it just done and dusted.